Well, good evening and thanks for coming along this evening as we continue our journey through Exodus. We've come this evening to chapter 14, which is one of the most dramatic events in the whole of Old Testament history. That's the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, we don't know exactly where the crossing took place, and uh, there is no natural explanation for the how, how the Red Sea parted so that the Israelites could walk through that. But we're going to take the text exactly as it says at face value tonight and follow its message through into the New Testament. The story is told so expertly in chapter 14 that I think it would be worth reading the whole chapter, or practically the whole chapter. So let's pick up this story um, from verse 5 of chapter 14. This is after the Passover. The children of Israel have left Egypt and they are now being led apparently into a dead end. So when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us, out, brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night 
the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. <clears throat> and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So this chapter marks a turning point in the Exodus story. The crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian army leaves Egypt powerless over Israel for the rest of the book. Before this point, Israel had been living under the control of Egypt, but after the Red Sea, Israel is free to embark on their famous journey to the Promised Land. So, Let's summarize life in Egypt before uh, the Red Sea and then see how things changed after the Red Sea crossing. Now, we've already seen in, that in Egypt, the Israelites were slaves. But what motivated the Egyptians to turn the Israelites into slaves? The Egyptians had developed their own view of their purpose of life. And the Israelites became slaves because of the beliefs of Egypt about their, the purpose of life. And what was that? Well, two things. First of all, materialism. The Egyptians had a very materialistic view of life. Exodus tells us that they forced the Israelites to build treasure cities for Pharaoh. Cities uh, for all Pharaoh's wealth. The Egyptians believed that the purpose of living was to become wealthy, to have a comfortable life of luxury, and to impress others with your wealth. That belief in the purpose of life had a profound impact on how the Egyptians viewed the value of human life. Remember we read earlier that it enabled them to justify committing genocide by killing all the Hebrew baby boys. And in the, wealth, in the world of Egypt, 
Wealth was more valuable than human life. So that was one fundamental principle of a world based on materialism. But there was one fact of life which the Egyptians, with all their wealth and power, could not escape. And that was the fact of death. Those colossal pyramids that Amos, uh, Egypt is famous for were built to create a sort of a make-believe view of the afterlife for the national leaders. Egypt had no shortage of religion. Uh, they worshipped more gods than we could count. They worshipped anything and everything. And they demonstrated that famous saying that when men choose not to believe in God, they do not believe in nothing. They become capable of believing in anything. And the fact of death ultimately makes any materialistic view of life meaningless. And human religion cannot overcome the fear of death. So what happened to the Israelites then after God brought them through the Red Sea and destroyed Egyptians' uh, army? Let me mention just three changes, three things which God achieved, three things which totally changed for the Israelites. First of all, they were free, but it was freedom for a purpose, and that purpose was to worship God. <clears throat> Do you remember the message that Moses relayed to Pharaoh from God? It was not just, let my people go. He said, let my people go that they may worship me. So Egypt was suppressing the worship of God, and God liberated the people of Israel so that they could worship the true God, uh, having seen through all the false gods of Egypt. And after the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea, they were able to see the bodies of their Egyptian enemies who had been drowned. And that, what they saw, was evidence that set them free from their fear of the power of Pharaoh and of Egypt. The second thing which God achieved was to establish Moses as their leader. It's always a feature of uh, revolutions that the first people to be overthrown are the original leaders of the revolution. So Moses' position was precarious. In fact, the people turned on him when they saw the Egyptians. And so God, in using this journey through the Red Sea, was going to establish Moses in the eyes of the people as their leader, not just for uh, getting out of Egypt, but all through their desert journey. And thirdly, whenever Israel reached the far side of the Red Sea, that was Egypt finished with. And now they were on a new journey, not a journey out, but a journey towards the promised land. They had the promise of their inheritance to give them a new purpose for living. So the events of this chapter were a genuine and major turning point in the history of God's people in the book of Exodus. But you'll have noticed if you look for a few pages forward in your Bible that the book of Exodus does not end here. Escaping the power of Egypt was not the end. So if you'll allow me to use the words of Winston Churchill to describe where Israel was at this point of its history. Some of you may be familiar with the fact that during the Second World War, 
the British eventually defeated the Germans in North Africa in the Battle of El Alamein. That was after three years of war. This was the first major victory for the British and it marked a real turning point in Britain's war against Germany. And Churchill described the significance of that victory and that turning point in these famous words. He said, it is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And that's how I think we can view the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea in the context of the whole journey that we read about in Exodus. It was not the end that they had been called to. It was not even the beginning of the end, but in many ways it was in fact the end of the beginning. So with that in mind, I want to look briefly at just some points about God's strategy in leading his people through the Red Sea, why he did it this way. And uh, then we'll look uh, at the New Testament significance. So first of all then, God's strategy in the Red Sea crossing. First of all, uh, we read that God led the Egyptians into a trap, a trap of false self-confidence. The Egyptians were confident of retrieving their slaves, rebuilding their economy. But God deliberately led, first of all, the Israelites into a cul-de-sac hemmed in by the sea and by Pharaoh's army on the other side. But what happened then was the cloud, which was a symbol of God's presence, and that led them, moved through the camp so that it went, be, it went behind them. So the Israelites would have sensed that they were enveloped, uh, immersed in that cloud as it passed through the Israelite camp. And God was moving to put himself between the Israelites and the Egyptians to protect the Israelites. Then, in a miraculous way, uh, God uh, opened up a pathway through the sea. And God called on the people to follow him through the sea. And it describes twice how it was like a wall of water on one side and on the other. Now, if you had been there, would you have dared to go through that? It would have been like walking into a certain death. And that's probably what people warned Moses. But as Moses led the people and entered into that threatening gap between the waters, it's almost as though he was walking into death itself. And he called the people to trust him and to follow him. And the people started to follow. They must have felt like they were walking into death itself. But Moses led them into that experience, but they came out the other side safe and well. And the people followed Moses as, that, uh, as he made that journey. It was almost like an experience of death uh, followed by resurrection. So it's not stretching things too far to see in this event a promise of Christ's death and resurrection. And later we'll see that this is exactly how the New Testament applies it and explains it. And it uses the picture of baptism. Uh, in a few weeks' time, we hope to have a baptism service where someone will go into uh, water, completely submerged in water, as though they are dead and buried, 
but miraculously, or perhaps not even miraculously, they will come out again and we'll discover that they are alive. And that's the journey that Israel took through the Red Sea. Now, there's another point that Scripture does mention, that God mentions, and the Egyptians themselves mention, and that is that God was fighting the Egyptians entirely on his own. The Israelites didn't have to fight at this time. But at this stage of the journey, God did all the fighting. God waged war against the Egyptians. I've mentioned already that God used this to establish Moses as Israel's undisputed leader. And finally, God gave the Israelites evidence in the morning of why they did not need to fear their old enemies. They were able to see the bodies of all those uh, Egyptian military commanders and troops floating on the water and washed up on the shore as an important evidence to Israel that all their fears of Egypt were now groundless and they were set free from fear of Egypt. So, what does all this mean? All this historical event, what does it mean for us today? What does it say to us? Well, the proper way to answer that question is to see how the New Testament applies it. So, can you think of any references in the New Testament to this event at the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea? I can think of two. I'm just going to mention one tonight. And this is from Corinthians, where Paul says in chapter 10, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So this is obviously referring to how the children of Israel passed through the sea and how the, the cloud passed over them as it protected them from Pharaoh and his army. And it uses the picture of being baptized onto or into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, as Moses made this journey uh, through those waters and called the people to follow him, they did follow him. And in that sense, they really placed themselves entirely under Moses' authority and under his leadership and gave their loyalty entirely to Moses. And that's the point that Paul is making in that reference. Now, that picture of baptism as being a picture of what happened at the Red Sea is then picked up by Paul elsewhere in Romans. And this is where he starts to apply it to us and to show that the Red Sea was a picture of something much, much bigger and grander. He says in Romans chapter 6, all of us who were baptized into Christ, notice that phrase uh, paralleling uh, baptized into Moses, but all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we may live a new life. So notice here the direct fulfillment of the Red Sea crossing. First, when Christ himself entered into death, that was like Moses leading the way into the Red Sea. Christ's burial for three days was like 
the time that it took Israel to walk through that valley of death between the two walls of water on either side. And finally, just as Israel came out on dry land, safe and well on the other side, so too Christ came out of death when he was raised from the dead. The same person, the same character, the same personality, but alive forevermore. Christ forged the path through death, ending with his resurrection. And that is the first fulfillment of the events at the Red Sea. Now, the second fulfillment which Paul reveals is this, that Christians who have trusted Christ and followed him have walked that same path. We have been baptized into Christ. And baptism, as I mentioned, is an illustration of the fact that our old self was put to death with Christ and we have received new life, eternal life. And we are now completely identified with Christ. The Christian life is Christ. It's not a formula. It's not a relationship with church or with a religion. It is a relationship with Christ. And we are committed to Christ as our leader for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. Now, let's end with just two practical applications for what this means for Christians today, the implications of what Paul is saying here. <laughs> what is the destruction of Pharaoh's terrifying army? What is that a picture of in our lives? Now, since Egypt, as we've seen, represents the beliefs and values of this world, one uh, lesson of this is that we have been set free from the thinking of this world, the whole ideology that Egypt had, its materialism, its false religion. So what is the thinking of this world? Well, we live in a world that constantly tells us this world is all that there is that's worth living for. It just tells us uh, you can think whatever you like about religion, but as far as your life is concerned, this world and what you do in this world is the only thing worth living for. And secondly, our world frequently tells us that your value as a human being is measured by your success and your popularity. Being a celebrity in many people's eyes is the high watermark of being a human being. Being wealthy or successful professionally or good looking uh, and getting attention, that is those are measures of success in the, world, the eyes of this world that we live in. And those pressures can be very oppressive. Many people are slaves to what other people think of them. But Christians can look at the world and its pressures from a very different perspective. Christians can look at the attitudes and goals of this world and see how empty they are. We do not need to be intimidated by the world when it tries to make us feel small just because we're different. And it's our new life in Christ and the fact that we have a hope for the future, a future destiny, this sets us free from being tied into this world's values and pressures. Let me just give you a very practical example. I mean, some of you are students, and you can imagine a, a Christian student starting at a new university. You meet other students, and some of them seem to mock everything. They evaluate people based on how cool they are, 
and how good-looking they are. And at first, you feel a bit intimidated, and you're afraid to mention that you're a Christian. You're afraid of being mocked. You're afraid of looking weird. Some of you may well have known that feeling uh, and have been tempted to keep quiet about being, simply being a Christian. But think of what it means to be a Christian. Let's stand on the other shore, as it were, and look back. Your value is measured by the price which someone is prepared to pay for you. That's the way we measure value. And just remember that the Son of God, the creator of the universe, gave his life for you. That is the price he paid for you. That is how much you are worth to God, personally. And in comparison to that, the opinion of a few mocking cynics really counts for very little when you consider just how valuable you are. And secondly, as a Christian, you now have a new destiny which goes far beyond this life. And when we stand in glory before the Lord, when we are ruling in the world to come, how significant or insignificant will be a little bit of popularity or unpopularity down here. When we look back on times when we were embarrassed because we didn't want to be unpopular, that's going to be so trivial whenever we are standing in glory with the Lord and ruling with him. We'll be able to afford to laugh at the fears which enslave so many people in this world who follow this world's way of thinking. Now, finally, just to avoid being prosecuted under the Trade Descriptions Act, I've got to come back to our, the original title for this evening, which was uh, Escaping the Power of Sin. Now, so far I haven't mentioned Escaping the Power of Sin, so let's uh, look at, I'll rephrase it slightly as talking about the inner war against the power of sin in our lives. Now, we know as Christians that Christ's death has delivered us from the penalty of sin. We are set free from the fear of punishment. But that does not mean that sin is no longer a problem. Some Christians struggle with sinful habits which are not automatically broken when they become a Christian. Other Christians don't even bother to struggle, it seems. They don't struggle against sinful attitudes, but their lives are still very much influenced, powerfully influenced by sinful attitudes. So how can Christians escape the power and control that sin exercises in our lives? It does not disappear when we are converted. Can Exodus give us any help in this regard? Now, the reason I changed the title is that Exodus does not give us the full answer. But let's consider the problem. I do it by showing you a verse from Galatians which describes this inner war against the power of sin in our lives. Let me read it to you. It's from Galatians chapter 5. So I say, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict 
with each other, or as another translation puts it, they are at war with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. So there is a war which is being fought in our hearts. It's a war against what Paul calls the flesh. And the flesh is the source of sinful desires which rebel against God. It comes from within us. But did you notice who is fighting this war, according to Galatians? It's not us. It's the Spirit of God who is at war with the flesh. God's Spirit within us is at war with the source of sin in our lives. Now, does that remind you of anything uh, that we've looked at tonight with the crossing of the Red Sea? Who was it who fought the Egyptians? It wasn't the Israelites. It was God himself. He fought that battle on his own. He knew the Israelites were too weak at that stage to fight. So God is, takes on responsibility for fighting this war against the flesh. But you might say, if God's, if God's spirit is fighting the war against our sinful flesh, what is our role? Do we just sit back and get on with life? Why are some Christians still defeated by sin in their lives? Has God not the ability to defeat that sin in their life? Well, let me end by giving you an analogy of a sort of a war which I think Paul maybe has in mind. Uh, it's a, an analogy that will resonate with those of us who are old enough to have lived through the troubles here in Northern Ireland, to have lived through a, terror, a long terrorist campaign. And the same is true for, will be true for other terrorist situations across the world, where terrorists rely on support from a portion of the population. So what is our role then in this battle? Well, if you're considering a spiritual, uh, sorry, a terrorist war, our role is like the civilian population. Sin is like the terrorists. The Spirit of God is like the lawful government who is at war with the terrorists and the terrorists are at war with the government. Neither is really at war with the civilian population. The civilian population does not fight, but they must decide whose side they are on. They should not harbor terrorists. They have a duty to support the lawful government. And this is our role in this battle against sin. In the war against sin, we must take sides with the spirit, the spirit within us. We have to decide Whose side are we on? Who is the lawful government of my life now, now that I have been baptized into Christ? Well, of course, it is God himself. And in this war against sin, uh, if we harbor sin and resist God's work to defeat it, sin will grow stronger and its control will grow. But God is determined to take action in this war. And as what happens to a civilian population when they support terrorists? It's the civilians who suffer in the war. That's why it's so important never to harbor terrorists because it's the civilian population who will suffer. And if we do not cooperate with the Spirit of God in this battle against sin, then 
we ourselves will suffer. How do we cooperate then with God's Spirit? Well, firstly, we should give God full access to our lives. There should be no no-go areas, which some of you will remember in Northern Ireland where the police were not able even to enter. There should not be any areas of our lives like that. We should not harbour sin. And when there is a sign of sinful activity, perhaps in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our desires, we should inform God immediately. Take it to him in prayer at that moment and say, there's something going on here. I need you to fight this and I'm on your side. We should show God that we are on his side in this war against sin. And in this chapter in Galatians, Paul later goes on to say that our role uh, is to cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives. As he says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. And so we must uh, live by the Spirit, live for our future inheritance. When the Lord, when the Spirit guides us, perhaps through his word, we should follow him and obey him. So we're not told to fight the flesh and sin on our own, perhaps by trying to live by legalistic rules. That never works. If any of you have ever tried to have a flower bed that's free from weeds, you could spend your life scouring a flower bed for the slightest hint of a weed and pulling it up. But the best, the best way to suppress weeds is to plant lots of flowers. And whenever the flower bed is full of life, full of good things, that will leave no space for bad things to grow. And in our battle against sin, if we want to, to be victorious over sin, we need to fill our lives with good things. The Spirit will produce fruit in our lives, as Paul says in this chapter, will produce good qualities if we follow his prompting, if we follow his leading. His leading, his leading. And if we are constantly remember the fact that we have a destiny in front of us, that this world is not our home. And we should get on with our role of living in light of our future inheritance. So, as I said, the story of Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea is part of the story. And Christ's death on the cross for us, it is a turning point in this inner battle against sin in our lives. But it is not the complete solution. There's an ongoing process of sanctification which will last all our lives. So let me just sum up in finishing what we learn from the crossing of the Red Sea, in particularly in the context of this battle against sin and our lives. And I'll plagiarize again the words of Winston Churchill. That in this war against sin, the cross of Christ is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end of that war. But in the war against sin in our lives, the cross of Christ is the end of the beginning. It lays the essential foundation. It gives us hope for victory. But the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives, the Spirit of God in war, at war with the flesh, is what will ultimately bring total victory. So with that in mind, let's just uh, turn to the Lord in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that through real events in history, recorded in an inspired way, you've been able to show us uh, the picture of our lives and how we can be saved. Saved from forces that would destroy us, that would make our lives slavery again. We thank you, Father, that you have overcome the world. You have given us the tools and the weapons to overcome the world. We pray that, particularly for students who sometimes uh, have to face some of these issues for the first time, we pray that they would be strong, that they would remember the eternal context of their lives, and that they would understand that they need not be intimidated by those who might mock and attack. And also, Father, for all of us in our battle against sin in our own lives, we pray that we would cooperate with the Holy Spirit in his war against the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.